welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. I'm going to read just a portion of the full text we're going to go through today. It's the Christmas story, a Matthew's version, which we've heard and, and taught through many times in our lifetimes and in my time here, but we're going to revisit this passage, and I'm just going to read verses 1 to 3 to get us started to understand uh, the lives and the responses to Jesus we'll be studying today. And so with me, will you, as this year closes, filled with the grace and the goodness of God, hear with me once again the word of God. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews, for we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. We'll stop there. This is the holy word of God, and it has a holy story to tell. May we hear it today in fresh power. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Praise the Lord. Well, we are going to finish our Christmas series today. It's only fitting. It's just a day after Christmas. Christmas is still with you, right? And our mindset is still there. So I thought it would be good to just kind of continue all the way through this Sunday. Uh, We've been in a series called Do You See What I See? Which is designed to take us from some of the more comforting uh, images of Christmas to the deeper and more uh, consequential understandings of who Jesus Christ really is and who that baby uh, was as he arrived and would grow up to be. Uh, We've talked about three things so far. He was the perfect one, the perfect God, who became also a perfect man, the God-man, and the only being in the universe with two natures, both perfect. And he was able to go to the cross for us and be our sacrifice precisely because that's who he was. And then we also talked about the predicted one, the one, the only marked out Messiah, you could call him, whom biblical prophecies written centuries before he arrived laid in, into human time and history the details that would confirm that Jesus of Nazareth alone was and is the savior of the world who arrived into the human timeline. On Christmas Eve, we talked about the persuasive Christ, how when a person grapples with the issues of the existence of God and the the reality of eternity, only Christ brings the persuasive and comforting answer of his cross. Today, I want to talk by finishing, or finish by rather, talking about the provocative Christ. Because as I've mentioned a couple of times in this series, Jesus didn't arrive as a simple heartwarming figure. He would grow into a confrontational, provocative person. 
You must decide what you will do with Jesus Christ. He is provocative in every dimension of who he is. And everyone, sooner or later, that learns the news about him has to decide what they will do with him. So uh, we're going to look at a passage that has been seen for centuries of Bible teaching and taught in one of two ways. You could teach this as what we call a narrative passage because it narrates a story, doesn't it? And so one could teach it that way. One could go through each of the events and the, the footsteps of this whole experience and just talk about the events and what they mean. But this is an interesting passage because for centuries, uh, pastors and Bible teachers, as they've come to it, have seen that they could also choose to teach it as a character study. Actually, it's a series of character studies where we see a human response to God woven into the narrative. Now, this is unusual because really there are several characters that you see in this passage. And uh, there is King Herod. There, there are the Pharisees. Later on, we'll meet them as the scribes and the Pharisees whom Herod uh, went to to discover more about this king of the Jews who had been born. There are the... Uh, the people themselves in Jerusalem who are troubled by all that's going on. And then most of all, there are the Magi, the wise men of the East, right? That's who this passage is really built around, verses 1 to 12. It's their story. Now, I, uh, I want to visit it as a character study with you. And I want to review the, the people and the lives that are in this story and learn from them how to respond, and how we are to respond to the King Jesus as he arrives. Our response is dictated to him by our mindset about God. It's very important for you to understand that. How you ultimately respond to Christ will will be framed in part by your attitude toward God, toward spiritual things, and toward the rulership of your own life. So this touches all of us. This passage will touch you if you are a believer because at the end of the year and and as we start the year, I always reanalyze my spiritual life. I always try and take a look at whether how far I've come further in my walk and where I need to submit more of who I am to more of who he is. And this passage will help you do that. And I'll try and apply it along the way as I teach it. But also, if you're not quite into the family of faith yet. If you're here today or watching and, and uh, you're still seeking to understand who Jesus is, or maybe you're here or watching simply because you felt it was the Christmassy thing to do. Uh, Christ is not yet your personal Savior. This message is full of challenges for you to consider how you are presently reacting to Jesus. Now, I'll point out in advance that Jesus Christ is provocative. He does demand a reaction of some sort. And many times, Jesus provokes a division of opinion. You've probably found that to be true if you've walked with him for any length of time. More than any other religion, it seems, Christianity creates a response. There's all kinds of reasons why. But Jesus actually predicted this. In his earthly ministry, he promised his disciples that he had not come to bring peace, 
but a sword. Now, ultimately, he did come to bring peace through his cross. Galatians and Colossians tell us that. But in terms of the reactions of people to who he was, Jesus predicted he would be provocative. He says, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to divide one against another and and to force them to make a conclusion about me. He said, father will be divided against son, mother against daughter, brother against sister. Our society comes to to, uh, loggerheads when it comes to the truth about Christ. Maybe you found that even this holiday season through some tension that you've worked through in your own life with those in your family circle. Jesus did not make himself an optional individual. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. He was provocative in his very nature. The truth, if there is only one truth, and we believe essentially, if you understand the nature of what truth is, there can only be one truth. It's self-defining. It disrupts and causes you to make decisions. And that's who Jesus is, because he says, I am the way and the truth. So I'll make you grapple with who I am. And on that first Christmas, as he entered into human experience, different people in this story reacted to him based on their mindsets. And I want to walk you through the reactions. There were three responses, really, of of groups of people in this story and one final response of worship and adoration that only one of these groups of people arrived at. So I hope that as I preach, you might find yourself in this story. I'm praying that you find yourself toward the end of the story, worshiping him and believing in him. But maybe you'll find yourself at the beginning, still defying him, or in the midst of this story, really not paying much attention to him at all. Those are calls for change. So we'll take a look through the passage together, and I've basically built it around the four reactions to Christ, the four responses that we see to him. And now we'll walk our way through. I read the first three verses just to get us placed in the passage, but we're going to go through the 12 verses of Matthew 2, the the beginning. I've noticed that if people are threatened by Christ, they respond with the first reaction, which is a reaction of fear, of, of, uh, well, antagonism almost. And in fact, very clearly for some of us to Christ. As you heard my story the other night, that's pretty much where I was. So if you're threatened by Christ, you're going to respond in the first way, and that's fear, and that's memorialized in the first character in the passage in this set of flowing character studies, and that's Herod the king. He responded with fear. The Bible says when Herod heard about the arrival of Jesus, verse 3, he was troubled. So let's go into this and talk about this first response together that came from a threatened life. First of all, let me take a look at the time when all this happened. A lot of times you might have a hallmark timeline of Christmas in your mind. And uh, you may believe that the, the, the magi, the wise men, arrived just a little bit about after the shepherds left in that first uh, birth morning of the life of Jesus. And that's where you're going to be wrong. I know some of you, I'm shattering a whole image you had in your mind. 
Now take a look at this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So uh, let's take a look at the time frame. This did not happen the same night the shepherds came, the first birth night of Christ. The details in this passage tell us it happened up to two years later. Why do Bible scholars believe this? Well, you take a look at verse 11, and when the, the wise men finally arrived and were before Christ, it says in verse 11, they went into a house. Now, if you know your Bible narrative, that's different than where Christ was born. He was not born in a house. He was born in a stable. He was laid in a manger. He was not born in a house. So something had transpired in terms of the, the time and the place. Also, the text says in verse 10 that uh, they came, followed the star, came to the house, and going into the house in verse 11, they saw the child. That's a different phrase than you see in Luke 2. In Luke 2, when the shepherds arrived and Mary sat pondering all these things in her heart on that very first Christmas morning, the word that describes Jesus was brephos in the Greek, which meant a little baby in arms, a newborn. So in Luke 2, the, the shepherds come and they behold a newborn baby wrapped in, in claws and lying in a little manger. But here the word is child. In the Greek it's paideia. And we, we, we understand, understand that to mean a little child. Let me give you our English word, a toddler. Okay, a young child of, of months of age, maybe up to one to two years of age. Different title, different time. So that's important to bear in mind as this story unfolds. So a little bit about the time. Now, the first characters to arrive in the narrative are the, the wise men from the east. And we can talk a little bit about them. They're going to figure uh, very, very uh, significantly in the story. What is the name or wise men? The, the, the other name that, that we transcribe this from is, or we get that from, is magi. Um, the, the Greek term here is really untranslatable. Nobody fully knows what that word meant. It was lost in, in antiquity because these men came back in the ages past. The most that we know about them is that they were part of the Eastern Empire that is now modern-day Iraq and Iran, up to a thousand miles away from Jerusalem. They were leaders in that eastern empire. The most recent historical nation that would have occupied it at their time were the, was the kingdom of the Medes. But it had been a place in earlier centuries of a greater kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon. So they were descendants from a great, great kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon. And Babylon had created a tradition around its kings. It had created a circle of advisors around its kings, wise men to grant counsel and to interpret dreams. That's going to figure in our story too. And to give guidance and interpret history. So kings were surrounded by wise men. And that was a tradition that had existed for centuries since Babylon had been in that same region 600 years before Christ. These were the, the advisors of kings. They were not kings themselves. They were wise advisors, diplomats, 
philosophical leaders of the empire of the Medes who had traveled up to a thousand miles into Jerusalem to see this one whom they believed had been born king of the Jews. Just another thing about them to shatter some of your hallmark. Nowhere does it say there were only three. That tradition comes because they gave three different gifts. Gold and myrrh, right? So we've translated that. There must have just been three kings. No way. Not with the power and authority that history tells us men like this had. They were players. They were surrounded by an entourage. And so when they came into Jerusalem, it wasn't three guys tilting on camels with the odd hats we see in Christmas cantatas. It wasn't those guys. No, these guys had an entire entourage. It was, it was sort of like the, the, pres- the vice president's entourage of vehicles rolling into St. Louis or something. You knew that a person was arriving. And so when they arrived in Jerusalem that night, they were not a secret. When they rolled into Jerusalem, it was a big deal. There were soldiers with them. There were guards with them. There were other advisors with them. There was an advance team with them talking into their wrists and all of that stuff. (laughs) It was a big deal. So big that it turned the whole city upside down. And they had all arrived because they had seen an astrological phenomenon in the the sky. We'll get into more of that later. So just a little bit to give you the context. So the time was up to a year and a half to two years after Jesus had been born. You see, Joseph and Mary had somehow decided to stay in Bethlehem, in that area, just six miles or so from Jerusalem. They didn't go back to Nazareth, their hometown, for God's reasons. They had human reasons. And so in in order to maybe make things work a little bit better after the son had been born, for some reason, they left the stable and they got themselves a little rental house in Bethlehem. And they were staying there. And Jesus grew into his young toddlerhood there. That's what we assume. So that's kind of the picture of what was going on in the environment. Now we get to Herod, because this happened, verse 1, in the days of Herod the king. And these guys rolled into Jerusalem when Herod was the ruler of Judea and therefore of Jerusalem as a pseudo-Jewish ruler. What about Herod? There are a lot of Herods in your New Testament. They were all lousy, by the way, so they're easy to kind of put together in in a handful. I tell you. But uh, this particular Herod... Uh, ruled in the, in, the, in the years just before 0 B.C. By the way, Christ, we think, was born in 4 or 5 B.C. I don't have time to explain why he wasn't born at 0. Uh, anyway, there's a long story behind that. But he was born in the last years of the reign of Herod, this king. Herod was a pretender king. He was the son of a former pretender king named Antipater. The Romans had conquered the area of Israel decades before this, and Israel had proved to be a troublesome group of people to rule. And the Romans had constant headaches with the people of Israel. And so they wanted to install certain rulers there who would just keep people under control and keep the taxes flowing into Rome. And if you could do that, Rome would give you the right to rule. And so Herod's father went to Rome and negotiated the right to become one of those caretaker tin pot kings. He wasn't Jewish. 
And he didn't have any background to be a king, but he was a deal maker. And he went to Rome and he said, listen, I know you're having trouble with these people and I know taxes are not getting to you. I'll make sure there's no trouble, plenty of taxes. I just need this much off the top. And they made a deal with him. So he literally bought his kingship. That's how Herod's father bought his his way in. Herod took the same page out of his book, negotiated his own deal with Rome and said, what my father did for you, I'll do for you as well, just a little bit more. And so Herod was a paid-for, paid-off ruler. He was very insecure about his rulership. He became paranoid and ruthless. He didn't want anyone to ever threaten his kingship. In fact, he didn't want anybody to be king after he died. So if, you, if he suspected you might want to take over his kingship after he died, he would just simply assassinate you. In short order, he killed his wife because he thought she was conspiring with one of her sons to make him king after Herod died. So he killed his wife. Then he killed her brother to make sure that nothing transpired. And finally, he killed two of his sons just to make sure that they didn't have any ambitions. So he was ruthless and paranoid. He wasn't Jewish. He was an Idumean Arab by by, uh, by background. He called himself the king of Judea. But this time, by this time, he was in his 70s and he was dying. So you put all these factors together. Paranoid, ruthless by nature, holding on to a kingship that he knew he never deserved to begin with. Now in his 70s and he knows he's dying, he is at the top of the paranoia pyramid. Into that moment, we see in this narrative a huge entourage of of diplomats from the Far East, from a real kingdom, (laughs) moves into town and they start asking people, where is this Jesus who is born king of the Jews? Now, if you take a look at the narrative, they move move into town and it looks like they start sending their guys door to door in Jerusalem and they start asking everyone, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They don't go right to Herod's throne room. They just start asking everyone. And so it starts to filter through Jerusalem as they go knocking on doors. There are these impressive men from the east. They look like kings to us, and they're asking for another king, a king of the Jews. And that makes its way through the streets, and it finally comes, verse 3, to Herod the king. He heard it through the rumor mill. Worst way for Herod the king to hear anything. Because what did Herod the king do with all rumors? He killed them. So the rumor comes into the throne room. And when Herod hears this through one of his people who heard it through other people, and Jerusalem all of a sudden seems buzzing with this question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? This pretender king of the Jews reacts. And the verse tells us in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. The Greek word troubled there, picturesque, it means agitated. It means all stirred up. It was used to describe how filled with fear the disciples were when they were out on the pitching sea and Jesus suddenly came through the midnight walking on the water and they thought they were seeing a ghost. They were struck with fear. It's in the passive voice, which means it's a fear that comes upon you and you can't control it. That's how fearful Herod was of this rumor that there was a true king of the Jews and he had been born right under Herod's nose. 
And so he reacts. He's agitated. He's troubled. And notice, I love this next phrase, and all Jerusalem with him. Herod had a murderous hold on the people. And there's a saying that when the king coughs, the rest of the nation gets pneumonia. Maybe you've ever heard that. I don't know. In this case, it was true. They were terrified. If Herod got out of sorts in any way, it meant trouble for everybody. And that was what was rolling on. So let me just summarize what was happening here. Herod was a threatened man, wasn't he? He was threatened over the kingship he had established in his own life. He was his own ruler. He was a man unto himself. He wanted to rule his world and run his world his way. And when you're, when you're that kind of person and Jesus Christ comes into the picture, you respond with fear. That's what Herod did. A 70-year-old dictator suddenly being filled with fear over the rumor of a toddler king of the Jews. He was panicked. I just apply this to life and to us by saying that that if you are committed to be the ruler of your own soul, your own life, your own world, if you have declared that there shall be no God but you, if you have declared that you are the sum total of, of your existence, and then suddenly the evidence of a creator God and a savior God who calls you account for, for your own sin comes into your world, I'll wager that you're going to respond as a threatened person with fear. And maybe that's where you're at as, as someone who doesn't yet know Christ this Christmas. Maybe the whole Christmas message strikes you with this little underlining anxiety and reaction. It bothers you. If you're to be honest, threatens you a little bit and you're pushing it away with fear for one more season. That's not the right response, my dear friend. But it does show you the condition of your heart. You're threatened because you want to be king of your kingdom. That's not the way to respond to Jesus, but it's how Herod responded. He's an image of the natural man, the self appointed sovereign. Herod hardened himself. You instead can humble yourself if you see yourself in his life. I also think about Christians, and you know, um, this has been a pretty odd and difficult two years, really, now that we're going through in terms of the situation that our whole world shares. And I've noticed that uh, one of the big tendencies in my life is to want to control more and more things in my life. Ever noticed this? In a time when things get a little shakier and weirder and out of control, you try and control more things and you, you tighten, tighten down your life and you take control of more things and that's precisely the opposite of what God wants you to learn how to do in this time. He wants you to give up everything to him. But I found myself re- re- re-enthroning myself as a Christian in certain dimensions of my life. And this year I'm thinking about uh, crawling off the throne again. Really, whether it comes to financial certainties or whether it comes to always being right or whether it comes to winning an argument or whether it comes to just dealing with all these events outside of my control, I am re-enthroning him over these parts of my life that I've slowly tried to draw back into my own control. Maybe you can think about that as I do. So if people are threatened by Christ, they respond with fear. Here is the character study of that. 
Let's go on to a second response. These are people that really basically trivialize spiritual things. And that's may, that may be where you are this Christmas season if you don't yet know the Lord. It's trivial. It's something that you just get through to get to the new year. It's something for other people, not you. And certainly thinking about God and a Savior is just a trivial idea to you. If that's your frame of mind, you're going to respond the way some others did, and that's with disinterest. So there's some other people here that appear in the narrative now that really will relate to you. Herod, in verse 3, is all filled with trouble over the news of this king of the Jews. And so he he springs into action. And verse 4 says, his action was to assemble all the chief priests and scribes of the people and to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. So he brings in two groups of people. He calls a midnight meeting of the chief priests and the scribes. Who were the chief priests? They were the leaders of a group of rulers called the Sanhedrin, the 70, and I believe is the, is the title. And this was a group of Jewish rulers made up of Pharisees for the most part, but many others as well, Sadducees as well. And they were the Jewish leaders, and they led all the affairs of worship in Israel and the affairs of the Jewish state. They were sort of like the city council of Jerusalem. And these men were experts on the Jewish religion, and they were the leaders of the Jewish people. So he gets all the chief priests, who were the leaders of these leaders, into the room. And he also brings the scribes. Who were they? Well, they were the Bible experts. They were the religious students. They had spent all their lives transcribing and memorizing the the Torah, the first five books, uh, particularly the first five books of the Old Testament, and all the the hundreds of laws that the Jewish uh, teachers had added on to the Old Testament. They were the experts about the law and the prophets and the Old Testament. So Herod gets them both into the room and he asks them a question. Where is the Christ, the Messiah, to be born? So that's the question in the room. I just find it interesting why Herod had to do this, because he was not fully he was not Jewish at all. Yet he ruled a Jewish people, but he never knew anything about their traditions or their Messiah. So he kind of had to do a cram course that night. He kind of had to bring a bunch of people in and bring him that yellow book that says Judaism for dummies right across the front. He, just had, he didn't have a clue. He didn't have an understanding. And so he brings it all in. He, 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 he asks them this question. And it's almost, I can see them responding, cocking their eyes at him, because every Jew knew the answer. So he says, you guys are the intelligentsia. Where is the Christ to be born, the Messiah? And they told him, maybe from memory, seeing almost shrugging their shoulders, saying, well, in Bethlehem of Judea, of course, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. You can see, hear the scribes just kind of singing out in the room there. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, we learned last week, that's Bethlehem Ephrathah, the Bethlehem in the southern part of the, of, of the country, not the northern part, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's one of the prophecies about the Messiah that Jesus satisfied. So they said, In a sense, they were saying, listen, everybody knows the answer to that question. Every good Jew knows. 
Bethlehem Ephrathah, Bethlehem of Judah, which is just six miles away from Jerusalem. Common knowledge. So I find that that's interesting because the second group of people knew a lot more than Herod did. They should have been looking for this event far more than Herod would have. They knew more than the Magi did. And now you've got this entourage of people coming from the Far East, filling the town with the question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now you've got this secular king asking the same question that night in a meeting chamber, where is he who is to be born king of the Jews? They have the answer. So you see all of this questioning going on, all of this moment happening, and wouldn't you have thought that these men who had studied the scriptures for ages and who knew the answer, wouldn't you have thought that their first step going outside of Herod's throne room after they'd had this meeting would have been to take a six-mile walk through the gates of Jerusalem and out to Bethlehem to see? Think about it. You've got Magi saying, we've heard that there's a, a king who's been born here. In fact, we saw a star that, that, that called us to come. They've got a disturbed ruler saying, I've heard that there's a king of, Jews, of the Jews who's been born. Where exactly would that be? And they knew exactly where it would be. It was a six-mile walk, about two and a half hours if you took, two, took, took your time. But the scripture doesn't record that one soul walked over there. Not one man, not one ruler, not one scribe, not one chief priest, not one Pharisee, not one Sadducee. All those with all the evidence in their hands didn't walk over. Remember, this is about a year and a half after Jesus was born, and a lot of things had happened. Because John the Baptist had been born around the same time. And Zechariah, a priest in the temple, had received a vision from an angel saying that John the Baptist was going to introduce someday the Messiah and that this Messiah was going to be born soon. And there were angels and shepherds that had arrived at the, at the physical birth of Jesus. Do you think those shepherds stayed quiet? I don't. You're present at the greatest miracle you can imagine. They not only went to see Joseph and Mary and the baby, but the script says in Luke 2, they went out and told others. So that story went out through all Bethlehem. So this was not done in a corner. Jesus had been brought to the temple in Jerusalem, and Anna and Simeon had seen him and proclaimed him to be the Messiah. And Simeon, a well-known ruler of the time in the Jewish people, had sung a song of praise over him. This was not kept secret. And a year and a half had gone by. So with all this evidence, all these testimonies, all these people, all these miracles, all these stories, and none of them had ever been investigated by a simple six-mile walk. You know what I'm telling you? That's disinterest with a capital D. And that's the response of people that trivialize spiritual truth. They stay disinterested. They were not only just six miles from Jesus. They were six miles from redemption. They were only six miles away from eternal forgiveness. They were only six miles away from the depths of wisdom and joy that can come from a life being given to him. They were six miles away from God. 
but they ignored it all. So now you have your second character study. Now you have the second group of people. If you trivialize spiritual truth, my friend, your reaction is going to be disinterest. So is that where you're at today? Is disinterest the primary emotion yet again for another Christmas, another year? Kind of yawning through it. Maybe you're too occupied with the same things again year after year in your job and your relationships and all the things you're doing to get away from the anxiety of the times we live in. Or maybe you're too satisfied. Maybe things have continued to go well for you and it's another really satisfying Christmas materially, financially, whatever. Maybe you just racked Jesus up with all the other religions of the world. Sorry. He provokes a response. And if you want to continue to trivialize spiritual truth, you're going to stay disinterested. And that's a dangerous place to be with the one eternal God. Think about it. Don't be as disinterested as these people were. Because you see, I'm giving you evidences. Hearing me now, I mean, Jesus is not six miles away from you. He's right in front of you in terms of the teaching from the word and the realities of this text. You're not six miles away from Jesus. You're right in front of who he is. And you need to make a decision about him. I think about Christians, though. And I I think about the the dimension of, of the last year or two. And one of the things that's happened in our lives, I I found this out as a manager and a leader, but also just as somebody that's trying to go to the store. Um, Have you found that everything in our daily life is at least 25% harder? Is this true? Maybe for some of you guys, it's like 100% harder. I don't know. But I found that just about everything from finding what I need to find at the store, I have to make re-trips now. Are you doing this? It's great. Try and get an appointment with your doctor. You have to be a magi. <laughs> you have to show up with a posse, an entourage, and a whole ton of money. So everything in our life is 25% harder in your, in your workplace right now to lead people to go through decisions. How about hiring? Everything has got this extra dimension of harder to it. And so what happens in that time? What we do is we just, we deal, we cope. And so the important things in life, we push them back because we're so overwhelmed now with how hard it is just to get through the trivial things in life. Now that's dangerous because what I found in the last year in my life is that to manage all this stuff that takes 25% more of my time, more of my energy, more of my mind, who have I started to push into the background? I've started to push him into the background. It's hard enough to get to my time with God in a normal season. This ain't a normal season anymore. So it's harder to get to him. But when do I need him more? In the normal or the abnormal? The abnormal. I need him more, but my instincts say, I'll get to it, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. By the way, men, if you want a terrible New Year's, just tell that to your wife, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. No! 
but especially when it comes to a walk with God. So again, I'm looking at my life this year and I'm saying, have I begun to trivialize my Christ, my wonderful Savior? And because of my demands being increased 25 to 50% in in the mundane or the major in my life, just what I have to do to stay employed, to do what I do, Lord, I've let you go into the margins and I've got to intentionally press myself into you and push through all this added stuff to get to the treasure of who you are. I'm recommitting to worship. I'm recommitting to being in his presence. That's just from my own life. Maybe you are a spiritual superstar. Well, pray for me. I've got to run this to a conclusion here. There's yet another reaction, another character that you can see in the narrative that we've seen many times in this text. These are people that are seeking God. Now we get to the heroes of the story, the Magi themselves. They were not trivializing spiritual truth. They were not threatened by it. They were God-seekers. And if you're a God-seeker and evidence comes that, that God has come near, you will move toward him with, I guess the best word would be curiosity. And that's what these men did. Now we go farther, take a look at verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. A total lie. We'll go about into that in a little bit. But after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Here is a response of movement, of curiosity, of energy, of interest. It is the part of those who are seeking in heart. Go back through it with me a little bit. There's a plot laid here by Herod who is threatened by God. Herod summoned the wise men after having gone through his Judaism for dummies course and interacting with the Pharisees and finding out what most Jews already knew. Well, of course, the Messiah, when he does come, will be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Herod at least knew where that was. So he brings the wise men in and he answers their question. They've been saying, where is this king who's been born? This star has led us to Jerusalem. But we need to know where he is that we may worship him. Herod gives them the answer. And then he sends them with a a command, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Well, we already know about the heart of Herod, threatened, hateful, total lie, right? What was he doing? He was setting up a little scheme whereby when the wise men would come back to him to let him know where Jesus was and what their experience of worship was like, Herod was going to send his soldiers 10 seconds after those guys left the room and he was going to wipe out that baby. To ensure that he could do it, he would wipe out any child in that town. But we know this is up to a year and a half to two years after Jesus was born. And so he did the math and he decided to wipe out all children that were two years old or younger. 
We know that happened if you go down in your Bibles to verse 16 of Matthew chapter 2. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. What a wicked heart. That's how far a heart can go that wants to be its own king and refuses God. A lot of people tell me, you know, I, my, I, I'm very satisfied with my life. I run my own life, but I'm still a good person. Guess what, my friend? If you've decided to be the king of your own life, the Bible says you're depraved by nature. You've never been a good person. And there is no limit to the wickedness you yourself could, could perform in your life. Herod goes from a threatened man to a murderer in a heartbeat. So this plot is laid and accomplished. Herod established a kill zone and a kill zone frame of time. And history tells us that the prophecy was fulfilled. But at the same time, God was working to make a path for these wise men. I find it ironic that the one person that gave the wise men the right place to go was Herod. Just think about that for a minute. Is a sovereign God in control of the wickedest of people? Oh, yes. So Herod's laying a plot. What he doesn't know is that God is setting a path. And Herod gives the wise men directions for their six-mile journey. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. Let's get into these guys a little bit more just to kind of bring this into further and final focus. Again, what do we know about the Magi And what was in their background that would make them come up to a thousand miles based on a sighting of a star? Well, again, they were not kings. That's kind of a Christmas myth. They were statesmen and they were advisors to kings. They had come from one of the oldest civilizations in that region that was descended from Babylon. Babylon gave birth to a tremendous a set of expertise in the science of the time, astronomy and astrology. Astronomy was accomplished in their kingdom so that they were able to study and map the heavens as they understood it and plot the stars as they could see them. But then they also began to discern things from the stars. That's a false religion, astrology. It has been and always will be false, but these magi were engaged in it. They were, they were from, descended from ancient Babylon. Here's how some Bible scholars have put together why they ended up in Jerusalem. Babylon was ruled at its height by a king named Nebuchadnezzar. And Jeremiah the prophet had prophesied to ancient Israel centuries before that because of their disobedience to the God of the Bible, they were going to be sent into exile and they were going to be captured and put into captivity by the nation of Babylon. And it happened around 600 BC. Many hundreds of thousands of Jews were taken and put into captivity in this nation of Babylon, a thousand miles away from Israel. Among them was a bright, and promising an intelligent young man named Daniel. How many are familiar with the story of Daniel, the book of Daniel in the Old Testament? That all takes place in what's known as the Babylonian captivity. So Daniel has his rise to, to prominence and all of his great achievements in that time. Now Daniel... Uh, was given by God an ability to interpret dreams. That was a big deal because in the, re, in the realm of Babylon and among kings at that time, when they had dreams, they believed they were direct revelations from the astral plane and they meant something. 
Nebuchadnezzar had several dreams as you read through the, the prophet of Daniel's book in Daniel. Chapter 2, for example, had a dream and a second one later on. None of the wise men around him could interpret the dreams. There was a courtyard of wise men around Nebuchadnezzar five centuries before this. None of them could interpret the dreams. You probably remember the story in Daniel chapter 2. God Almighty, the true God, gave Daniel the ability not only to interpret the dream, he didn't have to be told the dream. He is so filled with power by God that Nebuchadnezzar recognizes this and exalts him into a position of high influence in Babylon. And in Daniel chapter 5, Daniel became so known for this that in Daniel chapter 5, verse 11, it says that the king made him the master of the Magi. This is very important because these men are Magi from the same region, descended from the same culture. Now, we also know that Daniel was faithful to God, that Daniel had the scriptures with him in his exile. He had the Old Testament scriptures. He had the the prophecies of the prophet Jeremiah with him. And Daniel himself was a prophet. So it makes sense that Daniel would have influenced the Magi over whom he was the master with the teachings of the God of Israel, doesn't it? Some scholars believe that the teaching of Daniel was descended through the the line of the Magi for five centuries. The teaching that Daniel gave them about the fallenness of man, about the need of a perfect sacrifice, about a coming Mashiach, a coming Messiah, a coming king who would be born king of the Jews, be born in, in Bethlehem of Judea, who would be the savior of the world. And that had all been taught generation to generation. It was in their history. It was in what had been taught by Daniel. And so these magi may have descended from the previous orders of wise men with that savior teaching teaching and consciousness in their minds. And some scholars believe that they were not only stargazers, but they were savior seekers. And so isn't it fascinating that when God chooses to draw them into the story, he does it by placing a star that they can't explain in the heavens because they're stargazers. And that star is used of God to lead them to a savior because they were also savior seekers. By the way, there's a little story in this about how God reaches people. Did he come just for the people of Israel? No. He came for people far away from Israel. Those magi represent us, non-Jewish people, people in a secular world, a scientific society, and God gave them everything they needed to find the Savior they wanted. I don't know where you're at today, but... But God will give you everything you need if you don't know the Lord to find the Savior you need. So anyway, he places a star into the heavens. Let's take a look at this star that they talked about. The word star is astera. I believe we get astro from it in our language, astrological, astronomical. It meant a star or a shining body in in the heavens or a blazing light. Now we know in verse 7, that the text tells us that the star had appeared. It, it had begun to light up at that time. There's a lot of question as to whether that was a literal star or not. And you know what? We can't know. But I find it interesting that the word can be a star, a little star in the heavens, or a shining body in the heavens, or a blazing light. 
There have all been all kinds of guesses over history by people about what the star could have been. Um, there's four ideas. Uh, some people have said it was Halley's Comet, which was, you know, transiting the earth even back then. Unfortunately, the nearest appearance was earlier in history, so it couldn't have been that. Or a supernova, that's another theory, an exploding star that suddenly fills the sky with light and a brilliant blinding flash, but they're unpredictable and very rare, and there's no record of that event happening anywhere near the time frame of this narrative either. Most popular one for a lot of people, it had to be a, a conjunction of the planets that they saw as they studied the heavens, these wise men. It was, it was very unusual, and they, they think maybe Jupiter and Venus, Venus came into a line that they usually don't, and that did happen right around this time. But this isn't a highly visible phenomenon. It's easy for us to see with our modern technology. It would have been very difficult for them to have seen. So that leads us to a fourth option. It was just a supernatural light. And you know, the Greek word allows for that. It meant not only star, but it meant a shining light. And that's the one I kind of tend to. I think God put a shining light in the heavens as these men gazed at their heavens. And it caused them to understand that that was a sign from God. And since they've been waiting for a Savior, and they've been waiting for the light of the world, it caused to stir in them that this was a confirmation that he'd been born. I'm not so sure the star led them to Jerusalem. I think it called them. It's interesting. In these days, around the time when the birth of Christ occurred, the whole world was expecting the birth of someone remarkable in Israel. There was a sense that God had placed in the hearts of men that his son was about to come. The Roman poet Virgil wrote about 20 years before this event. He wrote, quote, A child from heaven was looked for who would restore the golden age and take away sin. Wow. So here you've got men that for centuries been told by Daniel and all the way through time that there was a savior of the world coming. Men who studied the stars by nature. God placing a sudden light in the heavens that was never there before. Stirring in them the, the sense that this meant that the kingdom had born. That was enough to lead them to Jerusalem. That's how I believe it happened. Because God's time had come. So I look at these guys and I think if you're seeking God, you're going to respond with curiosity. As I mentioned the other night, the scripture says God has set eternity in the hearts of people. You can't deny it. In fact, the way how, how, how much you deny it proves that it's real. What are you going to do with it? These men chose not to deny it. They chose to move toward it and curiosity. Here's the last as we wrap up. These men came and found him. And the final response was really the only response they could give, and that was worship. It wasn't hate because they were threatened. It wasn't indifference because they trivialized the spiritual. It was worship. And we see the end of the story. Verse 11. Behold, the star 
Let me go back to verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. This is another reason why I think it was just kind of a, it was a light that God could move at will. He put into the heavens so that they saw it from a distance. It confirmed in their heart that this must have happened. They went to Jerusalem where they knew the king of the Jews. He was part of Israel, so they went to the capital. They're there. The star is over them still in the heavens. May have disappeared for a while, but then all of a sudden, they, verse, seven, verse 9 says, And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. How could that be? How could a star millions of miles away guide them to a house? I don't think that's possible. That's why I think it was a simple light phenomenon that God used and brought it down into their sight when they were there, and he led it right over that house. Can God do that? Well, he did it with a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud 2,000 years before that. Can God do anything he wants in the physical universe? Absolutely. That's what I think happened. So they follow this light. It comes right over that little rundown rental house in Bethlehem. And they rejoiced exceedingly when they saw it. Verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child, the toddler, with Mary, his mother. Can you imagine that scene? Now we have six children. And we can kind of map out the little milestones in their lives. And between a year and and 15 months or so, they all learn to walk. But it's not the walk that you and I have. You remember when your kids started to learn to walk and it was just barely a step or two and then clung and, and, you know. But what what do little toddlers walk like? A lot of them in the early months of getting used to walking, they do the Frankenstein arm thing, right? And that's actually designed into the physical system because it keeps your body balanced and lets you keep going to learn how to take another step. Isn't it phenomenal how God has designed it? Do you realize that the Bible says that God became flesh, not only dwelt among us, but toddled among us? That's the magnificence of my Savior. So in that rundown rental house in Bethlehem one night, this entourage of hundreds comes into the streets. And then the door is opened out of curiosity by Joseph, And he sees these magnificent men. And they ask if they can come into that little home. And Joseph says, well, okay, I guess. And opens the door. And these men begin to sweep into this home. And right about that time, Mary comes around the corner of the house. And who's she got? She's got a little paideia, a little toddler. And she might have been holding her two little fingers out like that because the next stage after the Frankenstein's arms is just grabbing a hold of anything and toddling on. Maybe the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the God of the universe, toddled out of the hallway on the hooked fingers of Mary and they saw him and the Bible says they fell down and worshipped him. Proskuneo is the Greek. They fell on their faces and worshipped him. These were some of the mightiest men on earth. And they lost all sense of who they were and how mighty they were because they had a full sense of who he was. And they worshipped him by faith. Wow. (laughs) What an astounding moment. 
And then they gave him gifts that signified who they believed he was. There's three gifts. Alfred Edersheim, in his great book on Jesus called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, showed us the, the, the significance of the three gifts. Gold was a gift given for a king. Frankincense was a spice that was often used in worship, placed on uh, an altar of flame, and it would go up with a fragrance. What was frankincense signifying? He was not only a king worthy of gold, he was a God worthy of worship, even as a toddler in the hallway. And finally, myrrh, we know that. It was a spice that was used during life, but it was also placed on the shrouds of a buried body at death. A king who always was God, who became a man destined to die for the sins of the world. The entire story of the Bible is wrapped up in what was in their hands. That's him. And they worshiped. Because their hearts were open, they were seeking. <laughs> Just remarkable. I wonder often if the Magi were disappointed in a way when they got there and there was no palace and no throne and no entourage of his own, no wealth to walk through, no attendance to ask permission to approach him. Instead, they were bowing before a little toddler in a rundown rental house. <laughs> But they knew enough so that their human eyes couldn't keep their hearts of faith from worshiping. And I'm telling you, Jesus Christ, if you don't know him, he may be a surprise to you. He may be unusual to you. He may not be what you're expecting. And there may be a whole bunch of faith involved in you worshiping him. But you just come to who he is as God has revealed him, as who you are, a sinner in need of that Savior, and God will fill in the rest. So how will you respond to the provocative one? That's just what I say as I close completely here. You can spend another year living as your own God like Herod did. Here's my promise to you. C.S. Lewis wrote it, a man who came from atheism to faith. He said, look to yourself and you'll find in the long run, next year and every year, only hatred, loneliness, despair, Rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you'll find Him. And with Him, everything else you've ever wanted and known to be life thrown in. I pray your response to Him will be a response of life. <laughs> 